Right. I'm here with Sheriff David Hathaway. Um, Sheriff Hathaway has made the news lately for um, having been one of the few sheriffs to stand up against the COVID-19 restrictions. Um, you were on the Tom Woods show recently where you talked a little bit about this. Um, and you've actually got quite quite an interesting history in the libertarian movement. Um, you, were, you were a devout student of Austrian economics, just rare. Uh, you've written for Lou Rockwell for the Libertarian Institute, and you've written a book, which um, I'm going to link to in the show notes, Immigration, Individual versus National Borders, where you debunk the mistakes point by point made by certain Austro-Libertarian philosophers who have strayed from free market private property principles in order to advocate state-run border controls. Um, on this issue, you're in the ranks of prominent Libertarians, Will Grigg, the late Will Grigg, Scott Horton, Bob Higgs, and Todd Seavey, who's been on, on the show talking about this very issue. Um, you're also a part of a five-generation Arizona ranching family and you have nine kids. <laughs> pretty, pretty amazing. And you've homeschooled all of them. Um, yeah. Which you know, uh, I have to apologize. I didn't figure out until recently that Butler Schaefer, was he your dad? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. I don't know yeah, why yeah, I yeah. didn't make that connection. <gasps> and, and if I can start out, Brittany, with giving yes. some contact information. When I'm interviewed, I always forget this to, to the very end. And sometimes I forget it entirely. But if anyone wants to contact me, I have a real easy email address. It's just sheriffdavidhathaway at gmail.com. All run together. No special characters just sheriffdavidhathaway at gmail.com. And as you pointed out, if anyone wants to read more about kind of things I've written in my philosophy, I have a lot of articles on lewrockwell.com. I have some articles on the Libertarian Institute. Um, and that book you referenced, it's kind of a niche book. I, I never really thought it would gain, you know, that it would have a lot of sales because I went through kind of a personal exploration on this issue. It was, it bothered me that certain Austrian economist, and I really love Austrian economics. To me, it's just basic free market economics. But on this one issue, on the immigration issue, I was baffled why they wanted, why certain ones, not all of them, like Bob Higgs mm -hmm. is an Austrian economist, he, he didn't go down this route, why certain ones suggest that we need state-run border, border controls while we're in the current nation-state phase that we're in right now. So it's the only thing they advocate um, state uh, a state funded, uh, you know, kind of police force is in that area on, on everything else They're They're completely against it. So right. as I went down that path of a personal exploration, just for myself, I didn't want to just miss something or demean these people like unfairly. So I went point by point and read everything that, that they had written people like Hans Hermann Hoppe and Murray Rothbard, um, on that subject to try to understand it, to see if I was missing something. And as I went through that personal exploration, I turned it into a book uh, because there were so many issues that I didn't understand why they went down those rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. There was like a, an issue of cultural destruction. And then they made uh, arguments about roads being a public common and a public common can allow people to pass by your property that otherwise wouldn't be able to. Um, they talked about homogeneous societies, uh, you know, that that would be the natural order that everybody would kind of be the same 
in a in a private nation, um, and just kind of a lot of other issues. I don't want to get sidetracked on that too much, but um, no, but it's a huge as, issue. It's a, yeah. It's and a as I went issue. through that, and you know, when we're off air, can you give me? contact information for Todd CV or either share my contact information because I'd like to send him my book that I wrote on that. I was listening to your podcast with him and I'm like, wow, he noticed all the same things, the same topics came to the same conclusions that I did. And I was really trying to be fair on this issue. I just didn't understand. Right. Because these aren't, these aren't, you know, idiots or, or statists, or these are, you know, well-intentioned people with, you know, who are pretty smart um, yeah. you can't just and, dismiss and, what they have to say. And just and along that point, I just read you a little passage from Bob, Bob Higgs. I have this in the subject on my book, just to point out what you're saying is true. Like there are people who oppose almost everything about the state. They oppose its taxing, its spending, its borrowing, its employment of clerks and bureaucrats, its central bank, its police, its military forces, its economic interventions, its social regulations, its scientific research, its public health activities, its space exploration, marine search and rescue, its public water supply and sewer systems, its building and maintenance of public tennis courts. However, uh, they apparently despise notwithstanding that they apparently despise every aspect of the state, they do favor the state's use of violence against Jose and Maria, the former seeking work as a strawberry picker and the latter hoping to get a job making beds in a hotel in the event that those two quote unquote aliens try to cross the state's border without the state's approval from the foregoing facts. Are you inclined to believe anything in particular about these almost but not quite anarchists. So it's like, I mean, I think he very succinctly kind of defines the mystery that I was facing that these people will say things like they are anti-state in every area, but for some mysterious reason, they've come up with an insistence that the state needs to be involved in hardened borders and, and control of immigration. So and, that, and, that led and, me down the path of just trying to solve the mystery for myself. And as I was making notes for myself, I just turned it into a book. So. It sounds fascinating. I mean, and, and it is a huge issue. And what's interesting about, about sort of your path there to me is that we're now seeing something very similar with the quote unquote pandemic. And there are a number of libertarians who on every other issue maybe not borders, but on most other issues are very consistently libertarian. But when it comes to public health or, or this, this pandemic, suddenly everything goes out the window. And I yeah. have to wonder, you know, there are a lot of accusations on the immigration issue. There are accusations that, well, libertarians who favor borders are really just kind of racist at heart, or they have this emotional attachment to to their idea of a nation and and of a culture, that it's an emotional thing rather than a soundly reasoned. And I see that with the pandemic, that it's very, very emotionally driven. Did you find that in your exploration of the the issue? Uh, Oh, yeah. Um, Here, it's funny. And um, I think I quote somebody else that I think was one of your guests also, Mike Boland of the 10th Amendment Center. He says, Mm -hmm. like, you know, you can find, if you're a libertarian, you can find common ground with people on the extreme left and the extreme right. They want to kind of beat their fellow man over the head on issues they don't like, but they like, they'll have absolute freedom on, on, that they would desire on, on another issue. So I, I've experienced that and I've talked to groups during my campaign, I campaigned about a year and a half for this job to be sheriff here in Santa Cruz County, Arizona. I spoke to all groups, you know, groups on the left, groups on the right. Um, and they would 
love me on certain things. Like groups on the right, right would love me on Second Amendment, and they love me on things like um, First Amendment, like during, you know, 2020, all the rules that we had here in Arizona, where you had to ask permission from the government to associate with 10 or more people to assemble with 10 or more people. So I mm -hmm. clearly said, well, look, this is a constitutional issue, even though we really should appeal more to natural rights. But, you know, speaking to certain groups appeal to a constitutional issue, First Amendment, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, churches were shut down. You had to ask the county board of supervisors for permission to meet with 10 or more people to assemble in one place. So they loved me on that issue. But they don't love me in my opposition to the drug war, for example, you know, or my uh, uh, opposition to these ridiculous wars in the Middle East or, you know, around the world. So when you're speaking to a group, you don't need to be two-faced and say a different message to different groups. The good thing about being a libertarian, you can speak to a group on the left on something that means something to them, you know, individual rights, or maybe they have a more correct take on immigration issues or something like that, or on they've seen the horrors of the drug war, as I have also seen the horrors of drug war in person, because I was a supervisory right. DEA agent for right. many years um, and, and saw, you know, Reagan's drug war in South America, which was basically just looked just like the Vietnam War, you know, the same Lend-Lease uh, Huey helicopters with belt-fed machine guns, door gunners, you know, uh, blowing up airstrips and communities and everything. It, it was really when Congress forced Nixon to end uh, the Vietnam War, as he promised he would in his campaign, but he never did, when they forced him to end it by, by controlling the purse strings, immediately, it was within the same month, Nixon declared war on drugs. And then all that same military equipment from Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. I saw it. It was moved um, to South America, to Bolivia, to Colombia, to Venezuela, to the Golden Triangle in Southeast Asia, you know, to Burma, to Thailand, uh, where those things actually still exist there, except for the governments like in Bolivia and Venezuela that has kicked DEA and the CIA out of the country. But it Fantastic. continued the same uh, because, as you know, the corporations drive a lot of the procurement and they're the ones that create the court of the, the sort of shadow intelligence that's used to justify, uh, you know, a military intervention or the drug war or whatnot. So as long as they, as long as the, uh, the military industrial complex was able to make money off it, they didn't really care if it was a drug war, but right. it's funny. It was all the same equipment, the same that's M16s fun. and grenade launchers and Hueys and C-130s that I saw and that I worked with down in South America, and people wouldn't have believed uh, the machine gunning of communities and blowing up of, of neighborhoods. And, and 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 you look at my home movie, movies from that era, Brittany, and you see the muddy rivers and the banana trees and the palm trees and the camo and the M60 machine guns. You'd think this is the Vietnam War, but wow. it, it's just those forces that make money off those things transition to to the drug war in that era. So well, that's another piece of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think, I don't think it's, it's unreasonable to think of, I mean, the way I think of the U S government is it really is, it's, it's a corporation whose business is war. And yeah. that's, you know, when we're electing a president, that's you're electing someone to head up that business interest. And yeah. if you think you're going to get something else out of it, then, then you really don't understand what, what the whole machine and, and is all I think, about. I think this was from one of your podcasts that you were referencing that your dad said the government's kind of a club for 
for corporations to that you join the club so that you can make profits and you can get what you want and you steer things in a direction. And unfortunately, it becomes kind of, you know, amoral or disconnected from morality. You kind of think that anybody who expresses a capitalist instinct is going to pursue things that are the best for the market. But once they get involved in regulatory capture, anybody familiar with economics mm -hmm. is familiar with that term, regulatory capture, um, they get involved in making things, you know, steering legislation and steering, um, you know, bureaucratic policy in, in, in their favor to, so they can make more money. And really the morality kind of goes out the window at that point, but and back to, Oh, I was going to go yeah, back to the pandemic yeah. stuff, but go, go oh, ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, and it's a little bit by necessity because they've, we've created, or we, they have created this, this regulatory structure where either you're, I mean, more and more, there's some gray area, but either you're one of the corporate cronies and you're doing exactly what you're talking about, or you're struggling to make it on your own as a small business. And in large part, because of, because of the regulatory burden, and especially so after this last you know year and a half, you're pushed out of the market by the regulations that the corporations are fully in support of because it knocks out their competition. Yeah, and then so they create obstacles to entry into mm -hmm. that market. And then you have uh, economies of scale. If you have a big company, you have a corporate legal team and you have uh, yeah. an R&D team, things that can actually, um, even if there is some cost, to dealing with a new regulation that you actually supported at the corporate level, you know, well, this regulation is, uh, um, you know, the smaller competitors won't be able to deal with it. But I kind of got sidetracked on, on that stuff to get back to the pandemic things. Yeah, I went through. I went through some some big issues with the whole opposition to mask and vaccines and all that during my campaign. Um, this was I was replacing a sheriff who'd been here for 28 years. He set the longest the record for the longest serving sheriff in Arizona. So by the time he bowed out and decided to let other people run, everybody and their brother wanted to run. So mm -hmm. I was running with a total of six candidates, a field of six candidates. And during uh, the uh, campaign about the middle of 2020, there was a candidate forum. And the chairman of that forum was the chief superior court judge for Santa Cruz County, for this county. And there was a forum for just sheriff's candidates for that one election, not for the other elections, um, because, you know, it was, you know, a, a wide field of people. And, and by that point, the COVID restrictions had hit. There had been mask mandates in this county and in the principal city of this county. And the uh, where I first got in hot water is the, uh, the people were submitting questions through Facebook. And this judge who was the moderator asked every candidate a question. And we would rotate who got the question. And then everyone else would have a one-minute follow-up to that same question. So here came the inevitable question like, um, if you are sheriff, if you're elected sheriff, um, would you enforce the mask mandate? Would you arrest people? Would you cite people? Would you throw them in jail? And every can I, I, on that question, I was the last candidate to get the question, to get my one minute. So everyone else had answered it by that point. And they had all said, yes, they would cite you. They would arrest you. They would take legal action against you if you refused to wear the mask. So it got to me and I said, no, I mean, people may have health concerns. By then there was already evidence of mold and bacteria colonies on masks of school children, um, you know, about the hypoxia, breathing in the lint that causes fibrosis 
paralysis of the lungs, lethargy if you're operating heavy equipment or driving a vehicle with a mask on with the reduced oxygen intake, um, you know, evidence that your higher, higher order brain functions are suppressed. You know, you can't think through complex problems as well. And we yet we had all the juries in this county being required to wear a mask. So that could render some of their, their verdicts, they would render inappropriate verdicts. But anyway, so I expressed all that in my answer. I said I had constitutional concerns about the social distance requirements and that you had to ask permission to assemble with 10 or more people. I said that's clearly a First Amendment violation, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. And then I, I let it be known that I have empathy with people who have health concerns. They don't want to wear the mask, not to mention just basic freedom issues. And boy, that blew up on me, Brittany. Like they just, uh, the local media <laughs> had a field day with me on that. And they they tried to crucify, crucify me on that. And the, the article they wrote, just trying to chop me to pieces on that, it set the record on their online version of, of, of their website on that article for wow. the number of comments. Typically, they get no comments or one or two comments. They had over 300 comments <laughs> on the article they wrote about me, the hit piece they wrote on me. And people told me, Hathaway, you should have kept your mouth shut. You shot yourself in the foot. You just cost yourself the election. And I didn't know. I thought, well, if people are that dumb, that all I'm doing is standing up for their freedom. I don't want to tell them how to. All I'm doing is standing up for their ability to choose for themselves. If they're that dumb, I deserve to lose. And in the end, I won in a landslide. As a matter of fact, wow. I got four times as many votes as the guy who came in second place. So wow. ultimately, it didn't hurt me, even though people said it would. And I don't know, you know, there, there are a handful of sheriffs, even here in California, that also stood up to the mandates. But I don't know if there are any of them who are actually running for office when this happened. You may be the only one who actually earned your, your, your spot in office with this platform. And it's so surprising because we have, you know, if you, if you read the newspapers, if you watch TV, if you listen to comments on nextdoor.com and, and all that stuff, it's easy to get the impression that most people are really behind the mandates and, you know, would not have voted for you. And yet you had this landslide victory. Why do you think, what, what do you think is going on? It's surprising. I think a lot of people just go along to get along. You know, they, they wear the mask because they don't want to be shunned. They get mm -hmm. on the appropriate bandwagon. Um, I, I think you can see this when there's a war fever before people get war fatigue. You know, you'll see that, uh, you know, during the, you know, the buildup after 9-11, the buildup to the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, just kind of everyone, it was the popular thing. It was the cool thing. You know, you had people like, Ron Paul enduring criticism for speaking a little wisdom during that time, but it was the cool thing to just kind of say, yes, we should go blow these places off the face of the earth, even though there was not an Iraqi involved in the line 9-11. There was no one from Afghanistan involved with that. They were Saudis from Saudi Arabia, but you just, in the moment, you don't want to oppose those things. And I think most people down here don't believe all the nonsense that, that, you know, that there's the black death out there, but yet they have no problem going to Walmart or just walking around living their everyday lives, but they're going to wear the mask just because they don't want to be shamed. I think they don't mm -hmm. actually believe that there's science, uh, you know, that's yeah. legitimate science. They just don't want to be shamed. If I can touch on another issue that came up right after I went into office, like my term started in, in uh, January. So what would that be five or six months ago? Um, I knew this was coming, you know, this thing about vaccine passports and folks forced vaccinations. So I thought, 
I better be pre prepared. I better be ready when I get this phone call, when somebody tries to piss. Because right then, it was Trump's miracle cure, you know, uh, Operation Warp Speed. You know, this is going to save everybody, these vaccinations. But, you know, I, I knew a lot of the science about vaccinations and how they work and the uh, the the adjutants and the, the immunosuppressors and whatnot. My wife has done a lot of research on that. We've actually had uh, uh, relatives that have been injured through vaccinations. So I, I knew some background on the science of vaccinations, but I studied up on the legal issues, knowing that it was coming on, you know, uh, informed consent um, and, and those things. So um, sure enough, like when I was in office two weeks mid-January, I, I got a call from the county attorney and the county attorney, this is, you know, the elected county attorney asked me, do you want to make it mandatory as a condition of employment for all the employees in the sheriff's office to take the vaccination. And here in Arizona, they had tiers, like three tiers of who gets the vaccine first. Law enforcement and first responders were one of the first tiers because they have a lot of contact with the public. So when they asked me that, I was prepared and I said, no. Uh, they, they asked me, do you want us to write up legal documents uh, that require everybody to take the vaccination as a term of their uh, condition of their employment? And I said, no, I'm going to abide by the legal principle of informed consent, where every employee analyzes the risks and the benefits of taking the vaccine. Um, and also, I can't track that information because the American with Disabilities Act and the HIPAA law mm -hmm. both have provisions that say you can't inquire about people's health decisions. You can't compel them to do one thing or another. So I was prepared on a legal basis to 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 respond to that. And then they said, okay, fine, that saves us work. And then it set a precedent because the other people were watching me, the police department and the fire departments were watching to see what I did on that issue. So that's a little thing I could do to set a precedent on those lines. And then one of the county board of supervisors, elected board of supervisors called me two weeks after that and said, you know, what are you doing, David? You know, um, we, the, the local police department, over half of them aren't taking the shot, um, you know, because I had set that precedent. And, and then he asked me how many in my agency had taken the shot. And I said, I have no idea, you know, because <laughs> American Disabilities Act doesn't allow me to track that information or ask that question. So just another little area where I could make a difference, you know, like. Yeah. Uh, well, you it, say it's a little area, but um, I just I was wondering if when you become sheriff, did you take an oath to uphold the Constitution? Yeah, I take an oath to uphold the Constitution of the state of Arizona and the Constitution of the United States. And I wanted to do that in a very public fashion so that I could use those constitutional arguments. And some people make the mistake, Brittany, of thinking it's the courts that have the job of enforcing or interpreting the, the Constitution, but it's not that way. If you look, you know, even though we're libertarians and we see state structures as, you know, being illegitimate, funded through theft, you know, through, through coercive funding mechanisms, but, you know, since I swore an oath to uphold the Constitution, the way it really works is in you have a the balance you know the uh, you know the balance is supposed to be the judicial branch legislative branch and the executive branch like a triangle and for some reason this our nation has fallen into this fallacious belief that it's up to the courts to apply the constitution interpret the constitution but i as an executive branch employee can just as easy uh, nullify a judicial ruling or a legislative proclamation if it's unconstitutional. And so can the legislature. They can overrule something that the judiciary does and say, no, that's unconstitutional. We're not going to let you do that. We're going to change some law so that you can't do that. So I clearly see that I can nullify 
and inappropriate law. And then most of these things weren't even laws, Brittany. They were like fiats. They were decrees. They were edicts. They were proclamations. They didn't go through any kind of legislative scrutiny. And I think John Adams, I think this saying is attributed to John Adams that we are a government of laws, not a government of men. Well, that was kind of disproven in 2020 when you had men making proclamations that didn't go through any kind of judicial scrutiny. And then those became the law of the land. And some of them never gave up the power. Like here in Arizona, there's a law that says the governor can act with emergency power for 24 hours. And within 24 hours, he has to convene a special session of the Arizona legislature. He never did. And there's a group right now circulating a petition to take legal action against him because um, he kept his, it's still in place. His COVID emergency order is still in place um, after, I think it went in place March of last year. So what is that? Uh, 14 months ago, something like that, 15 months ago. So well, um, it's, it's similar to Newsom out here. You know, he's already had a, a court up in, in Northern California has already ruled that he didn't have the power to make these executive orders. Um, it went to appeal and the appeal came back against him as well. He's that's still, you know, he, he hasn't even taken notice of that. So I think what to me, what this whole episode has really revealed is the extent to which, and it's like my, you know, one of my dad's favorite the quote quotes from my dad is the constitution is that document that prevents the government from doing all the terrible <laughs> things it does. Yeah. I don't know if you know, Mark Victor, he, yes. Oh uh, yeah. He yeah, runs yeah. A, a, attorneys for freedom. Yeah. And I've been yeah. on his podcast. He has an office just outside of Phoenix. He has that on his tagline for every email he sends out. He goes, I'm the constitution sure. is that great document or sacred document that prevents the government from doing all the horrible things that it does and both it's in present tense, you know, prevents them from doing the things that it does. And there's like a little humor built into that. I love, I love that saying. (laughs) Yeah. And, and that's, it's becomes, it's for anyone who's paying attention, it's, it's right here in front of us to, to see that, you know, in here in California, we live in a dictatorship. And what's tragic is that so many of the people that you talk to think that what's come down from governor Newsom, these orders is law and that if you don't go along with it, you're not respecting law. But in fact, it's the people like you and it's the sheriffs who are going against it, who actually have an understanding of what the, the law actually is and the law being the Constitution. And I, you know, I'm an anarchist, too, and I don't believe in all this state structure. But I have to say, watching over this past year, and I've had I've had Sheriff Mack on my show, too, talking about his organization and, and the power of sheriffs. And it does seem to me that there is a way that we can, if, if not achieve a completely anarcho society, at least restore common law, which is, you know, maybe the Constitution is one step between where we are and common law. But it does seem like we have some power to get back to that. Do you think so? Yeah, I think so. Because if you look at what is the bulk of state employees. The bulk of them are administrative bean counters. Um, they just, um, they're, they're not out there with a gun and a cage and handcuffs They're administrative bean counters. And then there's kind of quasi, uh, 
state employees like uh, research professors in universities that live off grant money. And what they function as is what Murray Rothbard would call the court intellectuals. They are the court intellectuals that provide the intellectual cover, you know, to go to war with a foreign country or why everyone needs to wear a mask or why uh, the size of the government needs to increase in a, in a certain area. So most of the people that get funding from the government or live as tax feeders um, are either benign um, administrative bean counters or court intellectuals. But I like a, a phrase that, that uh, Will Grigg used to use a lot that he calls, you know, the police, the military, the edge of the knife. That's the part of the government where the rubber meets the road. If you don't have the buy-in from the guys who have the handcuffs and the guns and the cages to put people in, how are you going to enforce a tax law? How are you going to enforce an environmental law? How are you going to require people to pay their carbon credits before they drive their car? You know, you can make all the rulings you want like that, either legislative you know, statutes or, or, or just, uh, you know, regulations that are promulgated through the executive branch. But what force do they have if you don't have buy-in from, like, say, a sheriff or a police agency? Because that's that's where everything is applied. You can make all the mask rules that you want or social distancing rules, but they're just scribblings on a piece of paper if you don't have a, a guy that's going to lay hands on you and make you do that thing. So if the guy who, who whose job is to lay hands on people um, to carry out court orders and legislative you know, rulings, if he won't do it because he says it's unconstitutional, who's going to do it? I mean, you're not going to have some secretary that works in for HEW or that works for the local county recorder's office go um, arrest people for something they wouldn't know how to do it. They're not, they're not, uh, they don't have the authority under the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the police rules, you know, like we have what we call post certification where there's a process where peace officers are certified in the state of Arizona in order to have the authority to act as a police officer or a sheriff's deputy. Um, these, what I call these administrative bean counters, um, they, they just want to like make their little rules or they're, they're an auditor or they do accounting and they want to go home at night and uh, get a movie off of Netflix and just kind of hang out with their family and then just kind of go out to eat, you know, go, go out to Panda Express and eat dinner. Their, their life doesn't involve the edge of the knife, actually, like pointing a gun at somebody making people comply. So you're right. I mean, even though the bulk of the government is the people that make these rules that scribble on paper that do accounting and, you know, budgeting and things like that. And, and they justify everything as, you know, court intellectuals. It doesn't happen. None of it happens unless you get the buy-in from a sheriff or from a police chief. Mm -hmm. And yet it seems like, you know, again, happily, there have been sort of a handful of sheriffs that have recognized the, the illegality, the unconstitutionality of what's happened this past year. Why aren't there more? Why, why have so many sheriffs just and police departments just gone along with this? You know, um, if I can get down to just kind of a little social factor here if, within the life of, say, of a police officer, um, people don't want to, they don't want their family to think that daddy does something bad, that daddy's involved in something immoral. So people kind of know when they're in the police profession, they know that it's funded through coercion, through force. They know that taxation is theft. They know that when they fill out their tax returns, it's not voluntary. It's not like, how much do you want to give to the government for police services? So it's this dirty, dark little secret that they know internally if they work for a police force or for the military, or for a sheriff's office, or for the state police, or the California Highway Patrol, 
they kind of know that it's not a market creation. There were not price signals that resulted in the creation of the sheriff's office or the the chippies in California, the you know the California Highway Patrol. It's not like a, a, a response to market signals. You know where basic microeconomics. You vote with your dollars and you get more of what society wants, and you get less of what society doesn't want. So you get more iPhones because people vote with their dollars for iPhones. But there's no there's no indication that the police forces in this country are a market creation because there's no price signals to indicate maybe security services would be a lot bigger. Maybe they would be a lot smaller. Maybe everybody would provide their own, um, you know, security services. So, you know, to, to, to basically look at it from that way, like why haven't more police officers, more sheriffs gone down this path? They kind of know the dirty, dark truth that what they're doing is not a demand from the public that it be done. They kind of know that they have to push a crisis. And if I can tell you, Brittany, part of the answer to this question is what is the rationale for all government action? all government action, whether it's wars, um, it's environmental science, it's police things, it's it's a coronavirus. The rationale is this, the government articulates a crisis and it doesn't have to be a real crisis, it can be a fake crisis. The government articulates a crisis and then the government presents itself as the solution to that mm -hmm. crisis. And unfortunately, when, once somebody's been in law enforcement for a fair number of years, they realize that that's how it works, that they have to articulate a crisis. They have to scare everybody, the sky is falling, you need me, you need me to make you safe. And I saw during my campaign, that unfortunately other sheriff's candidates, that's the way they campaign. They scare everybody. They say the world is a scary place. You know, marijuana is a gateway drug and everybody's gonna like start using heroin. Your grandma's gonna start taking methamphetamine, you know, like it's this, mm. all of society is gonna be the steamroller under, if I don't stop it now and nip it in the bud and save you from whatever scary crisis from Mexicans or Guatemalans on the other side of the border, from North Korea, from North Vietnam, from Iran, all these things that the government scares you with. And just kind of back to your question, so I don't get sidetracked too much here. Why don't more cops and more sheriff's deputies realize this and act that way? Because after they've been around a while, they just learn you have to push the crisis. You have to say, you need me. You need more DUI checkpoints. We need more breathalyzers. And they learn that that's the formula, that it's not really a voluntary relationship with society. Right. And then there's federal money involved too, right? If you don't play the game the feds want you to play, your department may not that, that's exactly right. Like when I came here, I realized I looked in the back to see all the vehicles had. We have one of those war surplus, you know, oh AMRAP, whatever big, you know, tank looking things back there. And then, but all the programs, like, you know, I've learned to understand the budget since I've been here for about half a year. There's so many programs that are federal grant money, but there's strings attached. You have certain things mm -hmm. like we have a federally funded Haida task force in this community that's run by the federal government, by ICE, which is now known as yeah. HSI, Homeland Security Investigations. Now we contribute three employees to that. Their salaries are paid um, through this uh, federal Haida grant program. And then we are obligated to do things that they, they, you know, substance abuse things in order to get that money. There's another one called Operation Stone Garden where we get a lot of funding from the federal government. And the intent for that is to use local officers to enforce immigration and border issues. Um, so, you know, there's, a and all those have strings attached. There's other 
levels of government activity that 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 where they they try to control. It's like, for example, the governor of Arizona just said that he's going to send the National Guard to the border to the border counties, and he just assumed that all the sheriffs would want that. But mm-hmm. me and one other sheriff said, no, I don't want to militarize the border. I don't want to make this look like a war zone. Our crime statistics here are safer. This community is safer than the big cities of Tucson and Phoenix. It's a very, um, you know, low crime rates, very relaxed and laid back. But when I go out of this area, when I drive to a big city like Tucson, they hear where I'm, where I'm from. Where are you from? Santa Cruz County. And they start whispering and saying, do you have running gun battles going through your backyard? And I go, no, it's like very safe. They they believe all the hype of the national media, but you're right. There's, and those are just two that I mentioned the Haida program and operation stone garden, but there's a whole bunch of others. There's the VCI, the violent crime initiative. There's the weed and seed program. And all of these are federal initiatives that involve overtime and equipment. They purchase vehicles. And then a small County like mine, I'm in the smallest County of Arizona. It's very hard for the County board of supervisors to turn down that money right. um, just because there's federal strings attached. So you're exactly right. There's a lot of federal control. And I'm sure you've noticed this tendency to militarize the police. Like when I was a kid growing up, a police officer looked totally different than they do now. Now in their everyday duties, they're decked out in their SWAT gear and their, you know, uh, ballistic vests. They they look like stormtroopers. And then it it would have been unheard of, um, you know, say 20, 30 years ago that uh, law enforcement officers would carry um, M16s in, in their regular day-to-day patrol functions. Mm-hmm. Like I remember when I was working with DEA, I lived in South America for eight years and I know you lived in, in Asia as well, but it was very commonplace to see a cop or a military officer with a machine gun on the corner down there. And it was just normal everyday thing that kind of the leftover of these military dictatorships. But I thought I would never see that in this country, but right. it's getting more and more that way. Yeah. So how do we, it, it seems like there are these forces pushing against local independence. How can, you know, if there are communities across the country who would like to be more independent from the feds, how can they accomplish that if their if their local sheriff's department or police department is dependent on this this money coming in? That, that's a good question. Like you've probably heard the reach. You, you mentioned Sheriff Richard Mack, who who started and he operates the Constitutional Sheriffs and Police Officers Association, CSPOA. Um, they recently had a, a victory in a county in Nevada. I can't remember the name of the county where the county board of supervisors and all the county entities agreed that they were going to abide by all the principles of the Constitutional Sheriffs and Police Officers Association, that they would nullify any federal laws that don't fit um, their vision of the Constitution and how they want to run things locally. Because you have control, not just over police forces, but over public schools. You know, the Department of Education makes mandates and and says we have, you know, like uh, Hillary Clinton's like no child left behind and we have Mm -hmm. to have the standardized testing, uh, which you know, kind of people were worried for a file that that would impact homeschooling, you know, and we've homeschooled all of our children. Um, But, um, you know, that's one thing they can do is try to openly affiliate themselves with and make sure they get a a sheriff that, that Sheriff Mack will certify. And there's a test actually on, on Richard, on the Richard uh, Sheriff Mack's website that you can test to see, is your sheriff a constitutional sheriff? What does he think along these issues? Will he work to nullify federal proclamations that don't 
that don't work and that don't make sense, don't fit the constitution. And actually the sheriff, you, you mentioned common law. The sheriff is the really the only legitimate original common law law enforcement official in the United States. Like there was a guy named uh, Peel, uh, Robert Peel, in that England, invented yeah. the, the London police department. And then that was the first police department. And then that was replicated in the United States. They made the New York City police department, and then the Chicago police department. But from the foundings of this country, going back to common law in England, the sheriff was the officer of the court that would carry out both criminal and civil proclamations for the courts. It wasn't a patrol function. You're not going out there. And, you know, despite what people think from watching cop shows, police don't go out there and disrupt crimes and, and find crime in progress. They, they write reports after the fact. So the original function of the sheriff was the officer of the court uh, that would actually, people could file a complaint against another individual. And then that complaint would be heard by a judge or a jury. And the judge or the jury would render their verdict. And then the sheriff would car carry out the verdict. Like say on a civil writ of execution, like this guy is accused of taking this milk cow and not paying for it. The judge hears the case. They file a complaint in court. The sheriff doesn't go out on patrol and find that case. Uh, the case is filed in court. The judge decides, yeah, farmer, Brown, you didn't pay that $100 for the milk cow, but you still have possession of the milk cow, but you didn't honor your contract. So the sheriff is ordered through a writ of execution to go seize the milk cow and return it to the farmer who is the rightful owner. So that was the only legitimate law enforcement at the inception of this country. And even all the federal law enforcement agencies, they're all Johnny come lately. Even the FBI was a creation of J. Edgar Hoover in the 1900s, that, that recently. And they were initially supposed to be just sort of an intelligence organization to sort of keep the president and the Congress informed of what's going on. Do we have spies out there? And they were unarmed. They were an unarmed mm -hmm. entity. There was no provision within the federal government to have an armed police force. I mean, the sheriffs were the only ones doing that function. So it is the sheriff is still considered to be the chief law enforcement officer of the county. And technically, not that the feds are going to ask me this, technically, they have to have my permission to do anything in the county to take any law enforcement action. But the, that is so the bird, the, the birds, chickens are so far out of the coop on that issue. Like in right. my county, I have the biggest Border Patrol office in the entire nation in my county. And I also have the third biggest Border Patrol office in the entire nation in my county. And I have the biggest ports of entry with Mexico and Arizona in my county. And they have like a massive number of employees under CBP, what's called OFO. So the, the federal... Uh, law enforcement officers in this county outnumber 30 to one, the, wow. the local law enforcement officers. Wow. So it's kind of like, how do I say, how do I deny authority for them to be in this county? <laughs> right. I just lost, I lost your audio there for just a second, but I, I think it's, I think it's all right. I, um, so it sounds like these, these guys are there illegally. If they, if they haven't asked you permission to set up shop and, and do what they're doing, they don't have the constitutional right to be there. That's correct. And maybe give point out another thing like that. Our governor here, Governor Ducey in Arizona, he just sent out a plea. I think he must want to run for president next time on, on the GOP ticket. He sent out a plea to all 48 states, the lower 48 states, send me your law enforcement, send me sheriff's deputies to the border here in Arizona. And they're already getting responses. There are six county sheriff's offices in Florida 
that said they are going to send sheriff's deputies to my border county. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, who's been good on a lot of things with coronavirus, yeah. but on this yeah. issue, I think he maybe wants to run for president too. And they think the secret mm-hmm. issue is immigration. They think that's the secret issue, even though our border is not out of control down here or anything. Um, so Governor DeSantis has said he's going to send uh, Florida state police to work in Arizona on the border wow. and other state law enforcement officers. And he's told sheriffs, all the sheriffs in, in, in Florida, any ones of you that want to go to Arizona, uh, we're going to allow you to do that. So, so far, six counties have said they're going to send uh, dep- deputy sheriffs to my county in Arizona. And also another state just agreed to that. I can't remember which one it is. And there's another state that said they were going to send their National Guard um, to the border here as well. So it, it's kind of an odd thing because that would be even an officer safety issue. You have people coming here from Florida. They're not post-certified to be peace officers in Arizona. They don't know the terrain. They have different radio frequencies, different uniforms, different cars. They don't know who the law enforcement officers are here. So you can have friendly fire incidents where you're having people uh, you know, attacking each other because they both assume that the other guy is a bad guy or something like that. But that's just another thing of like, obviously, I'm not going to give them permission. I haven't gotten any phone calls yet. I was just addressing <laughs> my board of supervisors this morning. We had our monthly board of supervisors meeting, and I just took the podium and addressed them and said, you guys have, may have heard about this on the news, that there's a bunch of sheriff's offices in Florida that are going to send deputies to the border in Arizona. But just to let you know, as the chief law enforcement officer for the county, I haven't been contacted by anybody yet, and they need wow. my permission to be here. So that's just another issue besides me telling the governor, no, you're not going to send the National Guard to the border because I have to grant him authority. I don't know if you're probably familiar with the posse comitatus law. It says that the military cannot act as a police force in the United States. And rightfully so, because you don't want like to have a military coup, a dictatorship. So they have to come on as a support role for the sheriff's office. And they just assumed I would say yes. I said (laughs) no. So the National Guard never came here. But I don't know how that's going to play out with these other law enforcement officers descending on us from other states. So that right, to be what seen. what can you do? I mean, other than get into a gun battle with them, which you know nobody. Yeah, wants I don't even know. Even if you honor the state structure that they would be working under, there's no provision in Arizona state law for them to be peace officers. You have to go through a four-month academy Mm -hmm. to get what they call Arizona post-certified to be a peace officer in Arizona. So these would be people that aren't certified under the current state regulations to be peace officers in Arizona coming here to carry out a law enforcement function. And if they didn't do it in coordination with me, I don't even know what they would be doing. They wouldn't have access to my jail. They wouldn't have <laughs> access to our, our frequencies or the ability to run names in a computer. And I think it's just a show. I think Governor Ducey yeah. and Governor DeSantis and Governor Abbott in Texas is now playing this game too. I think they're just thinking, What got Donald Trump elected? Mm -hmm. I think the thing that got him elected is immigration and border security issues. So even though I think that's kind of beating a dead horse, I think that might be waning a little bit. They're still putting all their bets on on that one play. Like, we're Mm -hmm. going to be tough on immigration. We're going to say there's a border crisis, even though there's not. And I have been forced, Brittany, to learn all the statistics on, on migrant apprehensions because the federal agencies here will not grant interviews with the media. And I've done ride alongs with everybody with Fox News, CBS, NBC, ABC. And since the feds won't talk to them, they come talk to me. And I've been forced to learn the statistics that, you know, in the 80s and the 90s and in the 2000s, 
Border Patrol was apprehending over a million people practically every year. In the last 14 years, there hasn't been a single year where they apprehended over a million people on the southwest border. The numbers are way down, historically speaking. And even mm-hmm. even if they bounced back up, it wouldn't be an aberration. It would be 80s, 90s, 2000s, the same thing. And it's not a Democrat versus Republican thing either. Like all four years of Trump were low and all eight years of Obama were low. They were, most of those years were under half a million. And all almost all the years except one of Clinton were high, way over a million. Bush Sr., Bush, Bush Jr. apprehensions were over a million. So there's a lot of fuzzy math going out there on the whole migration issue. Mm -hmm. And I offered to go meet with our governor, Governor Ducey, before he started talking about the National Guard because he suggested he was going to do it. And I said, you know, I didn't want him to make a fool of himself. I wanted him to understand the reality here. But he refused to meet with me until he made his big grandiose proclamation about the National Guard. And like I think he's just trying to build political capital. Well, I think they understand that the way most people or most voters, maybe I should say, most people don't look very deeply into the issues. And so, as you say, it's it's for show. And it's unfortunately a show that probably works because they see the images, they'll, they'll hear the, the bumper sticker slogans and that's it. That's all, that's all that I think most people you yeah. know, look and, for and or want. There's a lot of sheriffs in Arizona that do exactly what you're saying. Like they, they play that one issue, the the migration issue, and they go around with their hair on fire, knowing that they have like this elderly kind of shut in population of voters, because Arizona is kind of one of the retirement capitals of the US. People come out here, we call them snowbirds, they come out here in the winter to escape the cold, and then they go back in, in, in the summer to wherever they came from, Michigan or whatnot. But there's this voting populace out here that's easy to scare and easy to make them think that there's all these Mexicans that are like Trump described them. They're all, he said, they're all, uh, you know, rapists, murderers, and drug dealers. That's an exact quote for him. You know, that's like, hey, wow. wait a minute. We have a very important economic relationship with Mexico. 80% of their external GDP of goods and services is directed to the United States. Like 40 cents of every dollar that Americans spend in Mexico is repatriated to, to the U.S. You compare that to <laughs> China, where it's only like four cents on every dollar. So in wow. the produce industry, people don't know that, that through my town yeah. here, 60% of the fruits and vegetables consumed in the entire United States during the winter, because the U.S. doesn't have a growing season in the winter, we're in a northern climate, that comes across this border. So the the relationship wow. with Mexico is very important economically, and people don't get that. And they just yeah. say, they'll just randomly say, we can just shut down the border with Mexico and, and we'll do just fine. <laughs> just like we can shut down the economy for, for two weeks yeah. and, and we'll do just fine. And and if I'm if I'm not mistaken, I think that the the crime rate among immigrants, including illegal immigrants, is actually lower than for than the crime rate for Americans for, for native. Yeah. Citizens, whatever you want. And another thing that people do, I mean, especially I get annoyed when libertarians say these kind of things, they'll do those kind of analysis of, uh, of, uh, you know, the, 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 the migrant workers that come here or the people that come here. And what they'll do is say, well, they're all coming here to get on welfare benefits. um, And, and, and yet, why don't, as a principle, just being a principled libertarian, why don't they just advocate to shut down welfare, you exactly. know, shut, shut off all state exactly. welfare funding? And then yeah. they will never add into the f- equation about 
what is the value to our GDP that is added by these immigrant mm -hmm. laborers that will take mm -hmm. all these jobs that no one else will take? You know, they they work in uh, you know industries like uh, lumber industry and then you know farms and um, you know the hospitality industry, hotels and restaurants. They will conveniently leave that out of the equation and just say it's just costing us all kinds of money. And I, I think another weird demog a weird change I've seen in my life when I was a kid. Grew up in, you know, with relatives that were primarily, you know, conservative, traditional people that grew up in the Depression. Back then, it was kind of anathema to get on public assistance, like just mm -hmm. within society in general. You know, I, I grew up in the 1960s, and people didn't want to go on the public dole. They didn't want to get food stamps, welfare be benefits, uh, Section 8 housing, uh, Social Security disability. All that stuff was kind of frowned upon. They they just wanted to, you know, to work and, and, and earn or earn their living through productive, you know, endeavors. But, you know, th then you, you, you fast forward to nowadays that where people have kind of gotten uh, used to that idea that, um, you know, that you're, you're living off government assistance. And during the whole COVID era, those people that were still holdouts that said, I don't want to take government assistance. They came up with a magic formula. Like we're going to shut you down. We're going to right. declare your business Maybe. as non-essential. We're going to take your job away from you, shut down your business and get you over this bad taste that you have in mouth of, in your mouth you to of, be dependent. of going on public assistance. You, you yeah. will take the stimulus check. You will take the PPP loan to your employer to continue your paycheck, even though you're working at home, just kind of get you over the hump so that you're not bothered by that. Yeah. Well, and here's another thing I hear from people a lot about immigration is the whole cultural argument that, you know, all these people are flooding across the, the border and they're changing our culture. And I think that's the one that kind of enrages me the most because I went to, um, you know, I went to private school and then I went to public school. I've seen the culture and, and sort of the values that are that are inculcated in, in government schools here. And then I went to California State University and I'm very familiar with the cultural values that are inculcated both in government schools and in universities and more so now, even more so now. And my feeling is, you know, if, if you're really concerned about someone undermining the values of liberty, individual liberty and freedom and the constitution and all that stuff, you know, it's not the Mexicans you have to worry about. It's, it's really right here in, um, in, in our indoctrination centers. Yeah. And you, and that bothered me so much, Brittany, that that was, that's the title of one of the chapters in my book. I ah. got the table and contents in front of me, chapter seven, the cultural destruction fallacy. And then closely related to that is chapter six, the homogenous, the, the homogeneous society fallacy. So yeah, you know, Same. you're exactly right. They'll use this and I explore it in, in, in great detail about how, this doesn't happen. And the idea is like, say, for example, in Western Europe, they'll use that for an example that we have to have in state enforced borders to preserve culture, you know, longstanding historical cultures. And I give one example in my book, uh, just kind of a little anecdote, but I, I get into a lot more detail about um, the German Mennonites that live in Latin America, Central America and South America. Uh, they speak German, they have their their you know their cultural linguistic religious traditions they're farmers they're dairy operators and they if that culture using that as an example if that specific culture adds value to itself or to society it will be preserved like any other good good in society as it gets scarcer if it's still 
adds value to society. Just it's a basic economic rule. Uh, those those cultures will be preserved, and you will see these pockets of German Mennonite communities, like in Paraguay, Bolivia, in Mexico, um, and mm-hmm. they. You don't need state-enforced national borders. As a matter of fact, those people, they do detest government involvement with their life. They will never join the military, sign up for a draft. They will never take public welfare assistance, even the ones here in the United States. They refuse to accept Social Security. They won't get on Obamacare. Um, and yet, they, re, they, they definitely do not disintegrate as a culture if they still present value to themselves or society. Like most of the dairy products in South America are produced by Mennonite communities. They make the cheese, oh, wow. uh, milk, ice cream, um, and they have very you know, large farms, you know, um, and they grow wheat and soybeans and whatnot. And, but they're, they're also, if you go look at them, there's no enforced border. There's not concertina wire around these communities, but you will see them. They, they very much look similar. They all speak German. Um, but yes, yet they're producing products that are of, of value to the community around them. So they don't just disintegrate and, um, and become to- totally assimilated into the culture that may be around them in Colombia or Bolivia or Argentina or Chiapas, Mexico or Chihuahua or whatever, or in Belize, you know, there's a lot of them in Belize and Guatemala. They, they still retain their culture. If it, if it, it has value to them internally, or if it externally gives value to the society around them. And down there in Mexico, they say, uh, yo quiero queso menonita. I want the Mennonite cheese, mm. you know, because it, uh, you know, it's it's nothing where you need a state. You need tanks and guns and jails and barbed wire to, you know, to make those. It's odd, though. I mean, you drive through Bolivia and you'll see like a school bus with a bunch of little blonde kids speaking German getting on, <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the bus in the middle of Bolivia. And it's like, but you don't need national borders for that. They've just right. decided to live that way. Right. That cultural, that culture presents it presents value to them that they think is worth preserving and the society also sees value from that culture. But that's just a little anecdote. It's a tiny little piece of that. Uh, like, like I said, the, the, uh, the, the chapter I have on the cultural destruction fallacy, how you don't need enforced hardened national borders to preserve cultures. Right. Right. I mean, if, if anything, in my experience, it's been the involvement of the state that's really done the most harm to our culture Exactly. Um, on so many levels. I, I mentioned that in that chapter too, that the state can actually corral people just like corralled livestock and make it where it's hard to escape. Like, you know, I mean, if you use look at the examples of Nazi Germany and the Jews or just different things uh, around the world where actually people who were maybe um, a persecuted people, if they can actually turn into refugees and then maybe they can preserve their culture. But if you are actually mm-hmm. boxed in like fences and walls and barbed wire and machine guns, they don't just keep people out. They keep people in as well. Yeah. So you can have yeah. harder for an oppressed cultural group to stay alive. Um, if, you know, it's just like the wars in the Middle East, these U.S. backed wars in the Middle East have actually exterminated some of the the populations of Christian communities yeah. that go all the yeah. way back to apostolic days. And like here in my community, people don't believe me when I say this, I go, you know, all that border wall and everything and all the, uh, the barbed wire and everything. And the, uh, we have the largest border patrol office in the country here. I said, do you know that they are now doing a hundred percent 
outbound ex- inspections, southbound inspections. They are now searching wow. for vehicles leaving the country, and they take money from those people under civil asset forfeiture laws, and then they require wow. the person who had the money taken to pr- prove, hire a lawyer and prove that it was earned legitimately, that you have that money legitimately. So I tell people, look, in East Germany, we should have learned the, the, that yeah. laws don't just keep people from coming in, they keep people from leaving. And it's going to be harder to become an expat to expatriate from this country and take your gold coins with you or your money or whatever. Because now it, it was a trial thing about eight years ago, Brittany, where I'd see temporarily they'd have um, CBP guys standing in the lanes going into Mexico, just randomly looking in cars. And they said, well, we have border search authority. So they reinterpreted their border mm-hmm. search authority to say people leaving the country too. And then over the last several years, it has migrated to be a full-time thing. They now have a big wow. tent, a whole line of guys that are just full-time inspecting. But that's what happens, you know, give them, give them an inch and, you know, it, it, that's, they see the opportunity to expand their power. And that's, that's just, you know, in my view, that's just the nature of the state. That's it is. Like Lou Rockwell always do. says that. And Mises said that, too. He said, uh, Lou likes to say, uh, all states want to be totalitarian. Um, it's just that they can't do it yet. And But if they can do it, they will. Like, I saw that with my little board of supervisors, city council, the mayor here. I knew these guys before 2020. And I knew them face-to-face, first-name basis. And I thought they were harmless guys. I thought, mm-hmm. these guys don't want to run anybody's lives. Um, they, don't, they don't have that libido dominandi that Augustine talked about, the lust to rule. But the little secret was, is they didn't have the ability then. Once they were given this excuse of coronavirus, mm-hmm. they were the first ones to put on mask rules, social distancing rules, shut down businesses, um, because they never could have gotten away with it before. They would have been laughed out of office. But that really taught me a lesson that that's true, that what Mises and Lou Rockwell say is that all states want to be totalitarian if they can get away with it. Most of them can't get away with it, but they will keep expanding their power as as much as they can. And I really learned that lesson here on the local level last year. Oh yeah. And I think just nationwide and especially here in California, we've, we've learned it because we've seen that we really do, you know, that, that when push comes to shove, we do live in a totalitarian state that our governments are able or very, very near to one because there's some pushback. We're able to push back in some ways, but you know, our government was able to shut down, you know, vast swaths of, of businesses, destroy people's lives, destroy people's livelihoods, dictate what you can wear on your face, dictate who you can be with, when you can leave your home. I mean, if that's not a totalitarian regime, what is? So what I'm wondering is, do, do you think do you think that having seen that, do you think that presents an opportunity for people to sort of recognize how bad things have become or how much power the state really does have in this country? Do you think that's an opportunity for us to do something about it? I, I would hope so, Brittany. I keep thinking and hoping that maybe there's a a new wave coming around the corner of just kind of libertarian instincts kind of manifesting themselves. Cause I wondered last year, they say the land of the free and the home of the brave and rugged individualist, especially out here in the Western States where we live. Like I live in one of the Mm -hmm. big Western States, like States like, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, Montana, Wyoming, you would just think 
that if that rug, rugged individual instinct existed anywhere, it would exist here. And it really surprised me that people just kind of caved in and went along with all this stuff. And it wasn't because there were cops out there shutting down businesses. I mean, that was rare. Not that it didn't happen a little bit. It did. But it was pretty much self-imposed. And that really surprised yeah. me. And yeah. I think just how you get war fatigue after you've had a long war like World War One, World War Two. I think there were we should take advantage of some fatigue through this this virus nonsense that hopefully some people are thinking, I never want this to happen again. And I think some libertarian groups are kind of hoping that that maybe this could become a way for the future. I know that I've been invited locally to speak to libertarian groups like in Tucson and this area and around here that I never knew existed in Southern Arizona. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden people are willing to wave flags and, 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 you know, have little house parties and, you know, uh, you know, have a little more prominence in the community rather than just hiding and thinking that, that their issues aren't palatable to the masses. I would hope so, but I don't know. I don't want to be pessimistic. I could almost as easily see it going in the other direction that like, why did people so easily accept this stuff? And they're still trying to keep it going, like talking about new variants and just sort of suggesting that, you know, that these things will be ongoing. But I hope there'll be some some backlash. And just, I mean, sadly, I've even had some attempts to mutiny here in my office. Like, um, we had these, when I first came into office, these local restrictions where you had to wear a mask and all the social distance and everything like that. Um, so, you know, I finally, our governor said that these local mask mandates are, are nullified. They no longer have effect, even if you keep them on the books. So I immediately put it on an email to my whole agency saying masks are not required in the sheriff's office or in the jail. Now behind my back, one of my commanders got on the radio and told all his things, disregard the sheriff's email, disregard his instructions. This doesn't apply to you guys in the jail. And, and I wouldn't have known about it unless somebody came to me and, and told me that that's what happened. And so, you know, I, 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 I made one of my other commanders go to him and rectify that and make him, you know, make it clear that he, he was going to do what I said. And then I found out once again, like a couple of weeks ago that, um, any new prisoner coming in here, even if it was for a minimal, uh, a minimum security prisoner, just some shoplifter, that they they had adopted a new policy without telling me. This is in my facility to lock up everybody twenty four seven in a cell, no no recreation. They you know that's not the way inmates are typically treated unless they're maximum security. They're a danger um, until they agreed to quote voluntarily take a COVID test. And then they would be given the opportunity after seven days to voluntarily take a test. If they refuse, they would be locked down for seven more days, just 24 wow. hours a day, seven days a week in a little cell uh, by themselves, no human contact. And in that unit, there was a lot of suicide attempts, people Jeez. expressing suicidal thoughts. Um, and so when I found out that was happening, I had an all hands meeting, I got upset and I chewed people out and said, look, you guys don't understand that I make the rules here and, you know, you can't have people, there's nobody that outranks me here. And, you know, it, and this doesn't fit with my vision of how we should be doing things, perpetuating this virus nonsense. And, um, but anyway, well, it also makes you wonder where does the impetus for that, you know, who, who thought that up and why, you know, why, why did someone think that was a good idea? Peers, uh, 
They have mm-hmm. peers in other detention centers. You know, that's kind of a sub subspecialty and they don't want to look foolish to their peers. So they want to jump on the bandwagon. This is the politically correct um, within our industry th- way to do things. We want to show that we're tough on this. And, I, and during my all hands meeting, I said, look, this is in the middle of the summer and you know, it's not the cold and flu season. If we don't stop this nonsense right now, it's never going to stop. Right. You know, we had a r- record setting streak of like 15 days in a row over 100 degrees, and I, you know, record heat and in the middle of June. And I said, this is not cold and flu season. This is not virus season. If you're doing these hard lockdowns now and forcing people to take What's tests. What's it going to be like in the winter? Yeah. And then once, once your cold and flu season comes back, they're going to try to ramp it up even more. And not to mention all the inaccuracy and the false positives and the high PCR cycles they do on these tests where they're all invalid anyway. And then they're not yeah. even testing for a particular DNA signature on a virus. Anyway, it's just like it's getting a broad spectrum. If you get any kind of a, any kind of a coronavirus, the common cold is a coronavirus. You're going to get a positive and then people are going to be told to quarantine. So I just, I got upset with it that they went against my wishes. And I just said, no more of this, no more of this charade. And I gave some of my personal beliefs about this coronavirus nonsense and Fauci and all that kind of stuff, you know, to boot like probably things they didn't care to hear, but just so it's clear to them, my perspective, and they can call me a kook if they want, but ultimately I'm in charge of what they do. And, you know, I don't just work to preserve the safety of the staff of the deputies here, the inmates, you know, like I have to be concerned about their well-being, their emotional well-being and safety. And they, they can't just go right. torture these people just because they're on a power trip. But, you know, so anyway, the right. little things I have to deal with where I figure out for the most part, people act loyal to me and they smile and they say, yes, sir. And they, they're thinking career enhancement for themselves. But I find out a little things that are going on behind my back, you know, and, yeah. You know, it's and it's not a popular position to be in, like being kind of a liberty guy in a in a position like mine, you you know, there there's not people in government that really um that praise you for that. They no. don't praise you for no. having that position because it doesn't they, help them. They they know that the crisis is their bread and butter, bread and butter, the crisis yeah. and expanding the powers of the government to deal with the crisis. That's their bread and butter. So yeah. people would assume that I have a cadre of deputies behind me that all think the same way. But like I said, they don't want their families to think that daddy is doing something immoral, that daddy's, he's a pirate. He's living off of plunder that's extorted from other people and that he's doing things that the market is not demanding, you know, that he's pushing himself on people and trying to control other people's lives. So they pretty much are happy if they stay in this career. They're happy with the idea that what daddy does in our family is a noble thing. It's a wonderful thing. He's helping people. And they don't like to get down to the dirty, nitty gritty. Right. That they're you can't actually... expose, you can't look too closely at what Exactly. What it they don't really, want to say really that really they're, they're living off of stolen money or something like that. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, just to, just to wrap up, um, Again, I'm coming from an anarchist perspective. I don't think any of any of this stuff, you know, taxation is not legitimate. Any of this structure is is not legitimate. But I am so encouraged by what I've learned this past year about the role of the sheriff. And I never encourage people to vote because I just, you know, I don't part not not just on philosophical grounds but really on practical grounds i think you know this whole game that you're talking about of expanding power that i feel like that's how you win at the game of politics and that's how that's how you get to be governor that's how you get to be in congress is you 
promote that game. You further the game of more plunder and more expansion of government power. But I, I really do feel that the, the office of sheriff is a different animal. And this is one practical way that we could actually, you know, nationwide sort of make a dent for liberty. If, if, and I, I hate to hear myself saying these words, but if, because the sheriff is an elected position and if Liberty people were to make an effort to elect pro-Liberty sheriffs who understood the constitution, who took their, their oath to uphold the constitution seriously, it might make a dent. Am I, am I being too optimistic? No, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, it's not, it's not getting to the private society that you would envision and that, you know, that I would envision, but in, in the meantime, I think it is good if you could have put a focus on, on the sheriff and, and, I've, you know, I never had any faith in national level politicians, but hopefully this last year has caused people to lose faith in national level politicians. You can't talk to the guy face to face. Like I have an open door policy. I have my cell phone on my business card. You can find it on the internet. I'll always answer my phone and talk to anybody. So I'm approachable and they can get mad at me and they can spit in my face if they want. They can't do that from even our U.S. Senator from Arizona. He's just in Washington all the time. He's not approachable and you just can't have a meeting with him or pick up the phone. And, and he wouldn't to him, care but, anyway because you're not no. the one paying his campaign bills. Yeah. So, you know, but with your sheriff, you can actually expect him to do things or tell him I'm going to throw you out of the office. Even like say a chief of police, even a big city like Tucson or Phoenix or like my, my uh, town here, the, the, the county seat of my county, they're appointed. They're not elected. So they're not accountable. They can just perpetuate all this nonsense and nobody can throw them out of the office. I think the fact that the sheriff's elected and can be thrown out of office and he's approachable at the local level. And if he understands the history of the sheriff going back to England, you know, what the common law roots of the sheriff and the ability to nullify things that are, that are, that are not appropriate or that are, you know, uh, you know, unconstitutional, you know, I think, I think that's really important. And I, and I, I can't get traction on this with anybody except you and some other people like the type of people you get for guests. But if you understand basic economics, I mean, that just tells you how the government is erring in so many different ways. And I, I guess I can't tell, expect people to find a sheriff candidate that cares about economics. I do. It's just kind of a hobby of mine. And to me, it, it show it shows how the world works and it fits with reality. And even though we, you and me use words like, you know, Austrian economics, and nobody would care about that, the Austrian business cycle or what macroeconomics means compared to micro, but it, you, all, all that economics is, is a description of how the world works, you know, and about how people interact with each other. And I think um, just on any political front, if you're having a political discussion with somebody, if you can just express to them, you know, the the importance of economics in day-to-day -day life, and that determines what's real, what's true, and what's immoral. Uh, but I don't think, you know, in the political front, I'll never be knocking on doors as a sheriff's candidate and trying to sell people on, on basic economics. But, you know, just kind of getting off that topic a little bit, if you look back at this past year, um, you know, what has been the problem of the last year? It's a basic economic fallacy. Like Henry Hazlitt wrote in economics in one lesson, like 
you can't just look at one issue like coronavirus or COVID-19 and say, we're going to make one policy prescription, social distancing, mask, everyone has to get vaccinated. And this will be the best for the whole economy and for the whole country. And I think it was Rand Paul that actually asked Dr. Fauci, go, did you ever consider yeah. the ramifications to the rest of society, the economic damage or the emotional damage? And he said, no, I never did. And that's what Hazlitt said. You know, you can't just look at one thing, one issue and make a policy prescription based on one issue. You know, like you, you will never know. There's so many, there's so many individual transactions out there in society. You can never add them all up and know what's best for society. You have to rely on the invisible hand of the market. And that's why, you know, any kind of societal prescription never works or never makes sense. You can't have some Soviet central planner or some central planner in the U.S. decide what's best for me in Arizona, what's best for you in California. You have to let the market work it out. But back to what you said, Brittany, in the meantime, yeah, I think the sheriff um, is maybe your only hope to get some kind of local control over your life. And maybe you would even have expanded populations in areas that have a good sheriff. That, well, so already, that's what I'm thinking is that, you know, yeah. maybe there would, there, there could even be, you know, movements of, well, you know, we're going to, we're establishing this, this, uh, I would call it a sanctuary zone for freedom or a sanctuary jurisdiction for freedom where we've got this good sheriff. You know, I, I hear people all the time talking about, let's just, you know, get up and, you know, move, get a place together, get, you know, buy property in, in, in an area close together where we can have a liberty-minded community. And yeah, so, and you know, like, you know, based on some of the podcasts that I've done, like I've gotten like thousands of emails, emails. I get so many that, you know, I like to go through and read them all and I try to respond to them if I can, but I, I'm surprised at the number of people that said, if I have the opportunity to move, I want to move to a jurisdiction like yours where I know there's a sheriff who's not going to try to run right. my life and take my gun. So I think it can kind of be a magnet, you know, for mm -hmm. um, pe people who are liberty minded to concentrate in one place and then maybe they will deprive themselves uh, to another place. And then that place will maybe come, come closer to withering and dying and stuff because their policies are failed. Kind of like the division of labor, labor but on a bigger societal scale, scale where you can yeah. see this works. You have a freedom sheriff here and people are moving there. And those are productive people that, that you know, want to live and let live and interact with their neighbors in a, vol a voluntary way. And that maybe you will have expanded little you know, geographic little zones, chunk, little, chunks of Liberty. Yeah. yeah. Little Liberty zones. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would love to see that. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'd love to have you back on again. I feel like there's, there's a lot to, to discuss here. Yeah. And there's a lot of other issues that we could touch on. Like I have a big family. I could talk about like, yeah, the family, I think libertarian family theory, there's a lot of, you know, lacking in that area. Um, mm -hmm. I've grown up in a ranching family here that we have a lot of issues with federal land management issues and whatnot of, of all the ridiculous nature of that. We could get into the drug war, you know, like all the failures I've seen in the drug war. So yeah, yeah if you've you got a lot of firsthand experience there. Yeah. If you ever want to do it again, Brittany, I'm sure we'd find a lot to talk about, but Definitely thank you so yes. much for having me on your show. And I'll just throw out my email one more time, Sheriff David Hathaway at gmail.com. And I'll put that in the show notes too. All right. 